thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. The evil has gone. Hello and welcome to our part two on the infamous Deutsche Bank. My name is Yogi Pollywall and I'm joined by the finest German-loving co-hosts. Sean P. McCarthy. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And today we will continue to look at Deutsche Bank after their role in World War II, robbing the gold from the teeth of the victims of the Holocaust to their connections to the CIA and many more scandals that came along the way. We're continuing our part two on Deutsche Bank. Uh, with our last episode on Patreon, we interviewed David Enrich, who had written the book uh, Dark Towers, the book on Deutsche Bank and Donald Trump and the corruption that follows. Uh, that will come out on the free side in a week from now, so look forward to that. And we will be continuing our bio of Deutsche Bank and their 150 years that they have been plaguing our world with just a whole bunch of dumb, dumb shit. Continuing with the Depression and the Nazi era. That's right. Continuing with our Nazi stories, ladies and gentlemen. During World War II, the government financed its budget deficit by printing new money, a misguided practice that quickly led to spiraling inflation. The problem was artificially suppressed by... Oh, oh, Stephen Stephen has something to say. Go on, Stephen. Well, they were... You know, uh, suffered defeat in a world war, so they mm-hmm. had no productive capacity. So that was kind of the cause of the inflation. Right, of course. The money printing came afterwards. I just saw uh, a big, like, um, exclamation mark appear above Stephen's head as, as soon as you said that printing <laughs> money caused inflation. <laughs> just after after uh, Stephen and I have talked for hours about, like, mon- monetary theory, I was like, oh, oh no, well, that's... Andy and I had like a thirteen-hour discussion about this right beforehand. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Steven looked like a guard in Metal Gear Solid who just discovered Snake. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, no, why actually. is there a box? Why is there a box right here? <laughs> Printing money does not cause inflation by itself. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, in in a nutshell, they lost the World War and they literally got bombed. So. That caused bottlenecks and that caused inflation. And then the money printing happened to meet the demand of the higher prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also so they were stabbed in the back. there. Here Quite we fight. go again. Um. <laughs> they won't tell you this history in, in Wikipedia. I want to hear it now, Stephen. Tell me every detail about this. <laughs> How come we didn't record this 13-hour discussion? <laughs> it wasn't yesterday, wait, but I think wait, collect- let's, like let's, collectively we have. Let's first hear Sean elaborate on this uh, little theory of his about how the Germans were stabbed in the back and lost World War One. <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell the Grub Stakers who really started World War Two and why. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. In 1945, the bank would be run out of Hamburg, and it would lose all of its branches in what would eventually become East Germany. In uh, 1949, they became... Much like the Beatles. That's right. In 1949, they became the basis for the newly formed Berliner Discanto Bank. Uh, In 47-48, the Western operations of Deutsche Bank were divided into 10 separate regional institutions. After negotiations with the occupying forces, these 10 institutions were formed into three banks. Nordisch Bank AG, Rheinscheid Westfalisch Bank AG, and Sududisch Bank AG. Just fucking nailing this pronunciation today, guys. <laughs> uh, they serve the northern, central, and southern areas of West Germany, respectively. And in 1957, these banks were again reorganized, this time to form a single Deutsche Bank AG with corporate headquarters in Frankfurt. They were three banks, but before that, they were uh, broken up into 10 different banks. Uh, uh, Bayerische Credit Bank, uh, Discanto Bank in Bremen, Hessische Bank in Frankfurt, Sudwest Bank in Stuttgart, Mannheim, uh, Norddeutsche Bank in Hamburg, Nordwest Bank in Hanover, Rheinische Westfalische Bank in Dusseldorf. 
Uber Rheinische Bank in Freiburg, Rheinische Credit Bank in uh, Ludwigshafen, and Württembergischer Vereinsbank in Reutlingen. Uh, mm. And so I, I missed, did you mention that the uh, this breakup happened, of course, immediately following the war uh, because of Deutsche Bank's crimes in the war? Right. And so it was... Um, you know, a pretty a pretty good uh, instinct that the Allies had to maybe uh, break up this bank that was responsible for all of these atrocities. The thing was, though, while this was uh, a pretty good um, gut instinct to break up Deutsche Bank, something happened after the war um, that maybe made people change their opinions on uh, what to do with banks, which was the increasing strength of the Soviet Union. So then going against their principles of uh, both, you know, breaking up uh, these power sources in Germany and also, as we've mentioned time and time again, uh, the process of denazification, um, they then decided that in order to best uh, beat the Soviet Union in a way that might be, say, beneficial to propaganda uh, would be to really strengthen uh, Germany's market economy. And so they did an about face and um, uh, they uh, then brought uh, those 10 banks together into the three that uh, Yogi mentioned, Norddeutsche Bank in Hamburg, Süddeutsche Bank in Munich, and uh, Rheinische Westfalische Bank in Dusseldorf. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then in 1950- Andy, that you're fucking up the pronunciation. Yeah, come on, dog. Everybody knows <laughs> the pronunciation is Norddeutsche Bank AG, <laughs> Rheinische Westfalische Bank AG, and Schwedish Bank AG. That's that's the yeah. way to do it, guy. Try to say it again the way Yogi said it, okay? <laughs> he did a lot of preparation for this episode. And uh, so in 1955, uh, West Germany actually ended up receiving greater sovereignty and... Uh, with that um, sovereignty, the new German government decided to just cut regulations on bank consolidation. And so then in uh, 1956, Rheinische Westfalische Bank changed its name back to Deutsche Bank AG mm-hmm. West. At the end of April 1957, after a meeting of the three successor institutions passed the relevant resolutions, on May 2nd, 1957, which uh, was retrospectively set to January 1st, 1957, uh, officially, uh, the new Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt was founded. So they broke it up because of the Nazis, and then they brought it back together because the um, they decided that the institutions that brought the Nazis into power would be useful against the Soviet Union. <laughs> Big surprise. Hmm. Yeah, I like that uh, the punishment for building and funding Auschwitz was you get, you have to be a separate bank for 12 entire years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they also, they kept like, you know, all, all the... Um, that was what that movie 12 Years a Slave was about. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I had Brad Pitt. Yeah. If you, this is just a warning to uh, anyone who is considering joining an emergent fascist regime. Um it may seem convenient now, but it might set back your career uh, about a decade. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, you know, modern U.S. prosecutors who uh, do all these deferred prosecution agreements with Wall Street banks. Just them looking at uh, Deutsche Bank being broken up for 12 years for uh, building and funding Auschwitz and going, man, they were really draconian with the banks back in those <laughs> days, weren't they? <laughs> Just, oh man, this is a brutal. This is practically the code of Hammurabi. <laughs> it should also be noted that in addition to the bank getting broken up and then reinstated within 12 years, apparently the chairman of the bank during Nazi rule, Herman Abs, mm-hmm. was reinstated. That's right. Was reinstalled. Yeah, which yeah. you know, great name for a Nazi, I will say. Right in the bio that I that I'm that I'm quoting from here, it talks about how at this time the bank would employ sixteen thousand people and would have assets totaling eight point four billion marks. And the man Sean just mentioned, former Nazi. Well, I mean, I don't think he was ever a former Nazi, but Herman J. Abs would be the strategist behind the reorganization behind the bank and be one of the key figures in West Germany's financial recovery, according to this thing. And he was uh, he was the Lincoln Project of Nazis. <laughs> First he was bad, but then they brought him back, and now he's good. Yeah. Mister Hitler, you are canceled. <laughs> Well, there has always been a close association between abs and burning. 
So uh, in the early 60s, the uh, bank would start focusing on uh, making its smaller depositors better. So it would launch these programs for loans up to 2000 6000 and have an overdraft facility of up to 1000 for consumers. But then under the direction of Herman J. Abs, he would begin to reestablish its international operations that it had lost. And I just want you guys to know, the first op- offices he opened were in Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, and Rosario, Argentina. Now, why, why do you oh. guys think he decided to open those banks in that area? Huh? What, about, <laughs> what about those areas scream, hey, after the war, Nazis, this area? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. They wanted the warmer climate. <laughs> Cloning projects need startup capital, too. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Dr. Mengele. You owe me several hundred Reichsmarks <laughs> for that account that I left open. Yes, we were opening banks in Argentina. No one said it was wrong, so we did it. I don't see the problem. <laughs> I guess the Vatican Bank just wasn't convenient enough for the, for the people in Brazil. <laughs> um... And they would also open uh, branches in uh, Tokyo, Istanbul, Cairo, Beirut, and Tehran. Uh, in 1968, Deutsche Bank would join the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Rotterdam Bank, uh, Britain's Midland Bank, and Belgium's Societe Generale de Bank uh, in founding the European American Bank and Trust Company in New York. So, and now we'd be moving to the early 1970s where. Deutsche Bank would found U.S. Bank, the European Asian Bank, with members of the same consortium of the group I just mentioned. And uh, Sean, I feel like you had some things to say about uh, banking in the 70s. Well, what I might say about Deutsche Bank, uh, for our listeners, if you've heard our interview with New York Times reporter David Enrich, um, that's on the Patreon. It'll be released uh, for free in the next week. But you've heard the interview with the New York Times reporter. It's time for the real truth. (laughs) The real truth. About what happened uh, with that judge who was shot to death by a FedEx delivery driver uh, who had just been assigned to the Deutsche Bank case. And I would just say, like, look, I've been spending a lot of time in quarantine. Uh, Really, my mind has just uh, left my skull at this point. I've read several books on the Kennedy assassination and watched constant uh, YouTube panel discussions. Basically, what I'm saying is... um, if you really want to just kind of fuck up your mind a little bit, you can think about uh, Tom O'Neill, of course, just released recently this book, Chaos, which is about Charles Manson and the MK Ultra and the CIA and all this stuff. And one of the premises that he offers is uh, something that kind of disturbs me a lot, which is the idea that the CIA lied to Congress in the 70s when they said that the MK Ultra program was a total failure. Like, the CIA told Congress during the Church Committee and all these other investigations that we just wasted time, we just dosed people with LSD, mind control didn't work, you know, none of it happened. Uh, None of it had any result. An isolated incident where the CIA lied to Congress. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, you look at some of these weird fucking incidents, like Tom O'Neill goes through one, I think it was like a Marine or a Navy guy who um, had no history of violence and like, committed some horrific murder of a child that he had no memory of uh, not too long after being experimented on as part of this MK Ultra program. Um, and then you just like look at these incidents like uh, the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. Like if you want to go crazy, you just read about the girl in the polka dot dress uh, in the RFK shooting who's multiple witnesses. There's like four or five different witnesses all independently say they saw a girl in a polka dot dress talking to Sirhan Sirhan, a, uh, RFK's assassin, talking to him before the assassination, al- along with one other man, uh, talking to him before the assassination. And then multiple witnesses also say that that girl in the polka dot dress was fleeing with a, with a different man um, and that... They shouted, you know, we shot him. We shot the senator as they were fleeing. And it's just like bizarre because the idea is this polka dot, this idea that drove me insane online is that this polka dot dress is like the polka dots are like targets. So like, you know, Sirhan Sirhan, if you buy that he's MK Ultra program, he sees the fucking dress like a target (laughs) shoot, you know, and then he goes and kills Senator Kennedy and has like no memory of why he would do that or actually doing it has no memory of the actual events 
I thought he would be activated by somebody saying his full name. <laughs> right. It'd be Sirhan. And he stops and he's like, Sirhan, Sirhan. And he's like really listening. And they go, Sirhan, Sirhan, Sirhan. And then he's ready to. <laughs> it takes a couple, yeah. To do the deed. So wait, Sean, you're saying that the polka dots were supposed to remind him of targets and activate him. Yes. And then he shot the senator. Was it something where like they were trying to program Sirhan Sirhan and he always shot like one meter to the right of the target he was supposed to hit. <laughs> so then they had to position both the polka dot lady and just the right position relative to him and Bobby Kennedy to activate his, uh, his programming. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you look, I don't quite know where the polka dots come in, <laughs> but it seems like, and so, and apparently like Sirhan Sirhan is recently, you know, cause he's trying to get parole. So you can say he's making this all up, but he says that apparently he remembers he was flirting with the girl in the polka dot dress and he thought they were going to hook up. Sure. And then he, and then she activated his MK ultra code word. So listeners, this is the dangers of casual sex. <laughs> you never know when you're going to assassinate a presidential candidate on behalf of the CIA because your Tinder hookup is a uh, is an agent. Sean just looks in the mirror and just says, Sirhan, Sirhan, as he slowly falls asleep. <laughs> oh, but oh, and apparently like they identified the girl in the polka dot dress. She died like a decade ago, but her ex-husband said every year on the date of RFK's assassination, she would put on the polka dot dress. What? What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She what the fuck? Been, she could have been mind controlled too into that right. role. Oh, interesting. I see what you're saying. Yeah, but yeah, and look, this is did a they ask him how the sex was that night? <laughs> <laughs> is that still around? Someone should. <laughs> I remember I finished early, and a bunch of people were screaming, and then others tackled me. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, and so and then the other one is uh, Nicholas Deke or Nicholas L. Deke is um he was nicknamed the James Bond of money. He was. Uh, he, he found it, the Deke Pereira Bank. Mm -hmm. The CIA helped him found it after World War II, and it was a front company to move money for the CIA. It also operated as a legitimate bank, but it was primarily, he was in the OSS during World War II. Then after World War II, the CIA put him in business, set him up with a bank. But by the 1980s, he'd kind of gotten involved with, I believe, Colombian cartels and uh, some other unsavory elements. He was forced to declare bankruptcy in like huh. 84 or so. And I, he was also under indictment at the time. And then in 1985, some random homeless bag woman shows up in his lobby and shoots him to death. Right. And not only that, uh, her name was uh, Lois Lang. She's still in prison. Uh, she got on a bus and drove 4,500 miles to his office, shoots him and his secretary to death with a 38 special revolver, his office in New York City. Did she um, do any stops? <laughs> yeah, you said drive. Did she drive yeah. or she ride out there? She was a fucking speed situation? And uh, she, she got on a bus, gotcha. 4,500 miles okay. by bus. So, you know, probably Greyhound bathroom breaks, talk to the <laughs> other... You said you said she drove it. I thought maybe she was like pulling over at stops, you know, picking people <laughs> up on the way. Right, right. She was driving the bus. What they don't tell you about MK Ultra is they make you get a job with the Greyhound services. You think Greyhound buses just run regular? No. You need to be hypnotized by the CIA to take a fucking job <laughs> driving a bus across the fucking country every week. Next time you get on a Greyhound, uh, count the toes on the dog on the side, and that's how many hits that driver's <laughs> pulled off. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the Greyhound had to stop every five hours so she could meet with a new girl in the polka dot dress. <laughs> I, I haven't seen polka dots in 24 hours. I think I'm right. cured. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you you if you see polka dots, maybe that's why they went out of style is the CIA didn't need them to assassinate Kennedys anymore because <laughs> the rest fell in line. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Lois Lang, she's, uh, she gets on this bus and is driven 4,500 miles to New York City to, to walk into this guy's office, ask his secretary if he's there, um, and then wait for his limo to show up, 
Um, she returns to his office, sh- uh, shoots the secretary, shoots him. Uh, while he was dying, she reportedly said, now you've got yours, and then took out her camera and snapped a picture of his dead body. When officers arrived and apprehended her, this is I'm quoting from the Daily Mail here, mm-hmm. she suddenly became very frightened and told them, quote, please don't hurt me. He told me I could carry the gun. She was never able to explain why she traveled across the nation to kill Deke. What the and fuck? And it just so... It just so happens, like, in the 1970s, she had been uh, treated by uh, one, possibly two um, psychologists who had been linked to the CIA and MKUltra. Oh, wow. So, um, wait, Sean, you're telling me that the CIA brainwashed people and they committed murders in this country and it was all legal? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Well, no, it wasn't, but nobody ever found out about it. Well, folks, stay tuned for um, our Jamie Dimon episode where we uh, delve into Bank of America and blow the lid off the moon landing. <laughs> so wait, is MK Ultra related to like when they may, when LSD was created as well, like the truth serum stuff, or is that separate from MK yeah, Ultra? Yeah, LSD, LSD was part of the it's MK Ultra program. Uh, MK Ultra kind of grew out of the uh, biological weapons uh program that the military was running now, as well as um uh the the idea we covered i think we uh, maybe you weren't here on the episode where we covered it but it it um it it grew out of um this uh idea that it, during the korean war some soldiers uh were arrested by the north koreans and uh tortured and then admitted were tortured and then admitted to uh dropping uh, uh biological weapons on korea and the jury's still out on whether they actually did hmm. uh but the takeaway from the united states government at least uh officially the takeaway was that oh wow they can um brainwash people and make them say things that aren't real again it's unclear whether america actually used biological weapons in north korea this is oh. just what they said gotcha um and so they were like, we need to figure out how this works for defensive purposes. Uh, and so, um, and so that's that was kind of the genesis of the MK Ultra program. Uh, Poisoner in Chief by Stephen Kinzer has a good overview of it. Yeah, like so. Tom O'Neill. Um, I, I listened to the interview he did with Joe Rogan. It's actually pretty fascinating, and uh, I haven't read the book yet. I'm sure it's great, but. He talked about how part of their LSD experiments was uh, the CIA's LSD experiments were Wait, to are see. You, are you talking about uh, chaos? Yes. Yes. Okay, I read that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Tom O'Neill talked about how part of the CIA's LSD experiments were to see the type of people who can have a psychological break on LSD. Hmm. Like there are certain people who you know drop acid, it's fine, but other people, you know, if they drop acid a number of times they will eventually have a personality change and i guess the cia was looking into whether or not they could induce psychosis in people with lsd as well as other drugs and just trying to find these particular people who would respond to it so it's like you do have these uh, kind of mentally ill people like sirhan sirhan and this uh this bag lady who shot nicholas deke to death where it's not implausible that those are the types of personalities who would respond to drugs or uh, this this kind of program. I don't know, but it, you know, it's the kind of thing that makes me uh, stay awake at night. Yo, Sean, do we got a name for this bag lady, or is the official doc say this person was a bag lady? Like we got Sirhan Sirhan <laughs> on the books, but we just have bag lady for this woman that clearly may have been uh, uh, manipulated by the U- United States government. Uh, no, I said her name earlier. I think it was Lois Lang. Oh, that's right. Yeah, my um, bad. But, but so she was, in the 1970s, she was treat, treated at the Stanford Research Institute, um, and apparently the uh, it had received CIA funding, and the doctor that treated Lang had previously published research about using drugs to create induced schizophrenia. Hmm. So, again, yeah, the idea of induced psychosis, or what the CIA wanted was fucking killers who would have no memory of the crime. Right, and, right. you know... Uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the things from from chaos, it's chaos that also to go down this rabbit hole was covered was that Jack Ruby, the guy who killed uh, Oswald, uh, right before he was interviewed by the Warren Report, he was allegedly visited by somebody involved uh, peripherally with MK Ultra, 
And apparently by the time he was interviewed by the Warren Commission, uh, he had, I guess, lost his mind. And so there's also uh, speculation that, uh, you know, there was maybe it, it, it one one of the conclusions from chaos was that maybe it's it's questionable as to whether you could um uh program an assassin like a, a manchurian candidate type um but it was more plausible that you could kind of drive someone to lose their mind uh, sure. more or less like jack ruby mm-hmm. and so uh that was that was just another you know if you want to if you want to uh, go down Oh, these brain worm tubes. That's that's another avenue you can take. Right. What we're saying here is the New York Times. You can listen to that episode if you want to be <laughs> controlled opposition. <laughs> but if, if you want to be the real dissidents, we're putting that stuff on the free side. <laughs> so you can learn about how that FedEx driver who, uh, for some reason, shoots this judge who rules in his favor... Uh, and then right. writes these like rambling manifest because it's like the thing is, you know, obviously the CIA changes with the times. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that you know, you just hear like MRA lawyer and shoot somebody to death. I think in a lot of people's minds, just the fact that somebody's like a men's rights activist or a racist or whatever. Right. I think that convinces people that they are capable of murder. And the vast, vast, vast majority of, you know, men's rights activists, racists, whatever, or people who post shitty stuff online are not, and they're especially not capable of just killing a fucking federal judge who just so happens to be linked to a Deutsche Bank case and then, uh, you know, committing suicide before anybody can question them about, you know, why or what happened or any such thing. And uh, we just have to take your word for it that the note that was found near her body is, is accurate. Um so, maybe, maybe not. By the way, if if it sounds like we're losing our minds, I just want to note that yesterday someone open fired on the White House. Oh. I, I think was killed by the Secret Service, mm-hmm. and no one noticed. <laughs> it, they just paused a press conference. That's right. I didn't know he was killed. Uh, or at least, yeah. yeah, at least he was he was uh, disabled. But like, there was a shooting outside the White House. Like, we are in weird times where. <laughs> If that happened in another country, you would just assume that it's it's a failing state. <laughs> hmm. But um, so if it sounds like we're losing our minds, it's because everyone is, obviously. I knew it was a mistake to start selling polka dot dresses on Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh, I did want to mention. Sorry, I did want to mention that Lois Lang had apparently, according to the Daily Mail, met with two Argentinian gangsters. Oh. Uh, Perhaps, perhaps connected to those who had lost money in uh, Deke's bank in Miami shortly before she purchased the revolver she used to kill Deke. And it's just weird because, again, this is a mentally ill, homeless bag lady going down to Miami to meet with these two like professional Argentinian killers in Miami, then going and buying a gun and getting on a bus and going 4,500 miles. So, you know, I, I like... Look, maybe the FedEx driver and the Deutsche Bank judge story, maybe they're telling us the truth there. But uh, you just you look at like these kind of cases like Deke and uh, RFK and Sirhan Sirhan, and you just have to imagine like there are things that the CIA is not telling us with regards to how some of these events play out. Going back to Deutsche Bank and the... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what we were talking about. The early 70s here. Uh, no, all of my tangent was related to the episode. <laughs> People need the truth about the FedEx driver. <laughs> and I have told them two random, uh, totally unrelated rambling conspiracy theories that you can really, if, you're, uh, if you've got a Russell Crowe beautiful mind, you can connect them <laughs> to the FedEx driver and Deutsche Bank and the subject of the episode. Listen, sometimes it's me talking about alligator blood. Sometimes Sean just wants to talk about fucking MK Ultra every now and then. You know, you got to you got to deal with what we give you. I think I I think one thing we've accomplished is uh made John Nash seem relatively grounded in reality. <laughs> I want to know how John Nash would have handled quarantine. Okay, let's see how he does when he can't leave a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan for 4 months in a row. <laughs> So in in the late 60s, 1967, uh, Herman Abs would retire and be replaced by uh, Carl Clausen and Franz Henrik Ulrich. 
Uh, they took his place at becoming co-spokesman for for the bank. Um, and then uh, in the 70s, Deutsche Bank would become the dominant financial institution in West Germany under the guidelines of the universal banking system in place in Germany for more than a century. Commercial banks were allowed to hold unlimited interest in industrial companies, underwrite and trade securities on their own, and play the foreign currency markets. In addition to providing credit and accepting deposits, Deutsche Bank took advantage of this rule during the 60s and 70s by investing in a wide range of industrial companies. In 1979, they would hold seats on supervisory boards of 140 companies, among them Daimler, Benz, Volkswagen, Siemens, AEG, Thyssen, Bayer, Nixdorf Alliance, and Philip Halsman. I don't know if all those companies are linked to um, uh, the, the, the Nazi party, but I think, I mean, well, through Deutsche Bank they are, but like, aren't most of those companies got some sort of links to Hitler? I mean, I can say for a fact that Siemens used um, slave labor, Jewish slave labor during the Holocaust. Every large corporation that existed from the 30s onwards at that status mm-hmm. was, basically. Jeez. Yeah. Ja, mix the couch, ja. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel bad that we didn't do enough bad German accent questions to David and Rick. Oh, you know what we should have done? We should have all done German accents throughout the entire interview and, and never mentioned it. Just every question we have. So we are wondering why you believe the Deutsche Bank is bad. You write book that say bank bad, but we think bank good. Yeah, we just all got like the fucking World War One spike helmets <laughs> and the <laughs> Prussian mustaches. <laughs> it's like, is this a bit? Is it, are these real people? Utterly disrespecting one of our most serious guests we've had. On. It's like, damn, I. I don't Shout know out to David Enrich. I thought I thought I knew Germans interviewing everyone to make this book, <laughs> but I I can't tell if this is a joke or if these are real Germans. <laughs> I gotta say I am loving our Deutsche Bank episode strategy, where it's like if you want real facts, you gotta pay us money. Yeah, of course. Like there's an interview with a New York Times reporter on the Patreon if you want to know real things. But if you want to hear bad accents and MK Ultra uh, chemtrails conspiracy theories, that's right here, baby. We're making fucking content during the end of the fucking world. All right, society's crumbling, and we're fucking sitting here with microphones instead of yeah. fucking building our guns arsenal and and constantly being paranoid of the upcoming Kamala Biden doom. Yeah, I could have coronavirus. I'm still here. I'm here on the Drops <laughs> podcast, you ungrateful motherfuckers who complain about the alligator blood bit and stop and like several hundred of you unsubscribe to our Patreon. Well, I'm like murdering myself to do this shitty podcast every week for you. Uh, uh, t- twice a week, Sean. We do, we do have a yes. Patreon. Yes, this is the delirium from the coronavirus is setting in already. <laughs> like every fucking day I wake up and I, and I look at the fucking news and social media and all of it makes me depressed. And I go, all right, well, time to learn about a fucking depressing oligarch that's actually controlling most of this shit. And it, it, it mm. never ends. I was literally I went to I went and got groceries today. Right. And I was in Trader Joe's and like I hadn't been there in fucking months. Right. I was walking around. And I was like, man, this is like nice. Like I was like, I was air conditioned. I'd been biking all day. So I was like, man, this is like really nice. And then immediately I'm like, yeah, you can do this when you fucking rob people and do fucking cocaine. And, but like every fucking fact in the thing just hit my head in that moment from our all the episodes. And I was just like, oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. You can live slightly comfortably if you exploit people constantly for hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. Like every day I'm like, you know, I've beaten myself up about uh, being unemployed and how bleak everything is, then I think, oh, no, wait, man, it's okay. You're part of a podcast about how nothing's going to get better. <laughs> it was so great. My um, my wife took me to Marshall's, and, you know, she got me some some nice shirts, uh-huh. just, like, very nice button-ups, you know? Right. And I would look at them, and I'd be like, oh, oh. man, this is such a great shirt for $12. <laughs> and then you have to, like, beat down the part of your brain that knows why this shirt is yeah. $12. Yeah, if anyone's wondering why we haven't uh, put out merch yet, it's because we still haven't figured out a way. Uh, it, it's 
next to impossible to just figure out a supply line without slavery for any kind of clothing. Mm-hmm. It is true. Like if we if we had just like not done our um, clothing supply line episodes before we started selling merch, yeah, that we would have merch by now. <laughs> yeah, but we know too much. So by the mid seventies, uh, Deutsche Bank would be interrupted in seventy five when Middle Eastern concerns, flush with petrodollars, supplanted the big banks as a source of capital investment. Uh, at the request of Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, Deutsche Bank purchased a 29% interest in Daimler-Benz for industrial Friedrich Flick to ensure that it would stay in German hands, with the understanding that the bank would resell the shares once the crisis had passed. Deutsche Bank already owned 25% of the famed automaker. In December of that year, it resold the shares to a consortium that included Commerce Bank, Dresdner Bank, and Bayersch... Lens Bank, Bayerich's Land. Am I saying this right? Bayerich's Lens Bank. You could just say Bavarian. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, wait, what'd you say? I can say it in Bavarian. No, the uh, Bayerich uh, means Bavarian. Oh, B- Bavarian Lens Bank, B- Bavarian National Bank. I had no idea. That makes sense. Yogi, you're the expert. Don't listen to Andy. <laughs> <laughs> this is all I have. <laughs> My German isn't even that good. I can just pronounce things. <laughs> Look, if you're a listener in Germany, please write into the podcast and say that Yogi is pronouncing it correctly and Andy is pronouncing it incorrectly. Just watch my self-esteem crumble even more. <laughs> Andy just erases on his LinkedIn fluent in German and just fucking tears roll down while he's like, the one special skill I had. That's fucking dark. Yeah, we uh, we we listen to Grubstakers, and we're interested in hiring a translator for our German business. No, not Andy, Yogi. <laughs> so then, by the 1980s, Deutsche Bank would make uh, major expansions into its foreign operations, both in commercial banking and investment banking. It would open its first U.S. branch office in New York in 1979, and by '87, it had bought out all its partners in U.S. Bank Consortium and renamed it Deutsche Bank Asia providing 14 more branches in 12 Asian countries. At nearly the same time, the company's capital markets branch began operating and trading in Japanese, British, and American securities. By the end of 1988, the bank had approximately 7.2 million customers at 1,530 offices, more than 200 of them outside of West Germany. Hmm. So, in 1980, Deutsche Bank was the only one of the West German Big Three banks to turn a healthy profit. Unlike Commerce Bank and Dresdner Bank, the other two of the big three did. Uh, the other two of the big three, Deutsche Bank, did not overexpand, but remained cautious in the face of high interest rates and continued recession. In 1984, it acquired a 4.9 percent stake in Morgan Greenfell, the British securities firm. In 1985, it would buy the scandal-plagued industrial giant Flick. Inderschildwaltung from Friedrich Flick with the intention of taking it public. And in 88, it acquired a 2.5% interest in the automaker Fiat. Uh, Friedrich Flick, uh, we also did an episode on, and I will give you a one-word summary. Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, when we uh, did the Anjani episode, we talked about how by the 80s, they would start flipping a profit. This would be a part of the reason they're, they're pairing with Deutsche Bank here. Uh, Another sign of uh, Deutsche Bank's aggressive pursuit of foreign markets was the fact that in the wake of the stock market crash in October 87, at a time where massive layoffs were taking place in the securities industry, the American securities affiliate Deutsche Bank Capital Corporation expanded its workforce. In 88, Deutsche Bank entered the treasury securities market at a time when many foreign firms were leaving. Two years later, the U.S. Federal Reserve recognized Deutsche Bank Government Securities, Inc. as a primary dealer of government securities. So now, at around this time is when Edson Mitchell, and this is now referencing Dark Towers, the book written by David Enrich, Edson Mitchell and a few other partners would start meeting together and figure out how to leave the companies that they were currently at to join Deutsche Bank to then start the three-decade-long run that they would go through from 1990 to now, where they would just wreak havoc on the fucking financial industry. 
Yeah, it seems like the story David Enrich tells is that in the 1990s, Deutsche Bank makes a real change towards uh, uh, being a very reckless Wall Street bank, whereas before then it was very conservative and uh, cautious. But then it just starts, you know, going balls to the wall. And we are seeing the results today where it's just completely exploded. I think the... um, the peak stock price in like 2007 was something like $170 a share um today uh, $120 a share in 2007 uh, and then as of August 11th 2020 it's trading about $9.55 a share so wow. the stock price has completely ex- imploded yeah, when they would join the company, Deutsche Bank would have like a German board of directors that would help, you know, help decide what decisions to be made versus what shouldn't be made. And then slowly they would turn that to where it would become a CEO model. And so, you know, the, the, the new kids on the block of Deutsche Bank would eventually take the keys to the castle and just fucking run amok with that shit. But before that would happen, in the early 1990s, this is when Deutsche Bank as Net income would more than double between 1990 and 93. This would be reversed in 94 when a series of problems hit within a short period of time. First, the bank suffered huge losses from loans of $1.2 billion it had made to property group run by Jürgen Schneider, which collapsed in early 94. Then two firms in which Deutsche Bank had invested heavily ran into trouble. Yeah, I thought he would be good for it. <laughs> uh, Balsam filed for bankruptcy and... Metal Gishlot, MG, an engineering conglomerate, nearly collapsed after losing $1.33 billion on speculative oil trades. Copper provoked additional controversy and public resentment when he called bills amounting to $33 million that the Schneider Property Group owed to construction workers peanuts. Fucking assholes. In uh, 95, the former head of MG sued Deutsche Bank over who was responsible for MG's downfall. And this would be around the time where Deutsche Bank's ties to the Nazi government would be dredged up when East German files were made public for the first time. So literally from 1945 to 1995, when people would be like, hey, Deutsche Bank, and like Nazis, they'd be like, uh-uh, there's no evidence. And then in 95, they're like, uh, there's evidence, buddy. They're fucking, we got files on your shit now. Yeah. Um, 95 uh, marks the year that they were ready to begin the healing process by admitting <laughs> some of their Nazi ties. Right, right. But very much not the uh, funding Auschwitz and looking at the building plans part of it. So in 94, Deutsche Bank would have significant losses and it would force them to increase its loss reserves. And then in 95, Deutsche Bank would make significant moves to further establish itself as a global investment bank. This is when Edson Mitchell and his new crew would roll in. Deutsche Bank North America acquired ITT Commercial Finance Corporation for $868 million to strengthen its presence in asset-based lending. The acquisition was immediately renamed Deutsche Financial Services Corporation. Later in uh, 95, Deutsche Bank would consolidate all of its investment banking operations into Morgan Greenfell under a new unit. Deutsche Morgan Greenfell, DMG, based in London and headed by Ronaldo Schmitz. The move shifted more than half of Deutsche Bank's businesses to London control rather than the Frankfurt, a shift that the European, uh, which is a magazine, called a corporate revolution. So at this point, they'd move all of their fucking shit to London, which was fucking unprecedented for them because they were like, we're German through and through. But now they're essentially becoming big bankers in the UK. So in September 95, Deutsche Bank would unveil Bank 24, the first full-service telephone bank in Germany. At the same time, the company was in midst of a four-year effort ending in 96 to reduce the domestic staff by 20%, with much of these cuts coming from the traditional-based retail network. Further innovation came to the domestic operations in 96 when Deutsche Bank opened its first supermarket banks. And that same year, DMG would have a scandal where fund manager would assign bogus values to securities in his portfolio, reacting quickly. Deutsche Bank management fired four managers and spent $280 million to cover potential losses at two funds. And then... In late 96, Koopa announced his resignation from his position as spokesman, but remained chairman of the supervisory board that I mentioned a moment ago. And Rolf Ernst Brewer, who had held it, headed up the investment banking operation, became the new spokesman in 97. All right. So in 97, Deutsche Bank would sell its 48 branch operation in Argentina to Bank Boston Corporation for about $225 million. And that year, the bank set up an... Ind- All their clients had died. Right. 
right at that point they're like we don't need our fucking argentina arm anymore yeah at, at that point the the bank set up an independent historical commission to research its role during the nazi era uh, these investigations were becoming the, the bank. Sorry, the bank set up an independent yeah. to investigate its role. <laughs> this was becoming common in the wake of the Cold yeah, War. Yeah, we were helping people a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, by '98, the bank really would introspective. Do some uh, self crit. <laughs> um. In 98, they... The guy, Oscar Schindler, is based on <laughs> us, actually. <laughs> um, all right. So, in 98, the Deutsche Bank would admit that it profited from gold looted from Holocaust victims and said that the bank officials at the time likely knew the source of the gold. A $18 billion lawsuit was filed against Deutsche Bank and other German lenders in, re- in relation to such looted gold. Deutsche Bank would reveal in 99 that it helped finance the construction of Auschwitz, the infamous Nazi death camp in Poland. Uh, and then this show would continue in, in 98. DMG would transfer most of the management control of the investment bank operations back to Frankfurt. They couldn't make it in the UK. They, you know, this got kicked out. Uh, and then they, more... f- they financed the construction of Auschwitz. <laughs> yeah. I just want to get that the weight. <laughs> if I can wait it this I mean works. like that's the, that's we, the type of shit that like I was so pissed off about when you'd see like David Enrich interviews where he'd be like I mean it's just a small bank that no one really knows about and it's like motherfucker this bank funded the worst oppression that's happened in history uh, crazy I mean that's like what's so funny about the Deutsche Bank story is because you know yeah it starts with like literally thousands of pounds of gold ripped out of the teeth of uh, Jewish murder victims um, and then from there it goes to, oh yeah, our clients are abroad in Argentina and Sao Paulo for some reason. Right. Uh, so let's service them. Let's make our money doing that. <laughs> so it goes from that to that. And then up to the nineties, they go, well, what haven't we done yet? Oh yeah. Mortgage backed securities. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just W after W after W for global humanity coming from one bank here. In, uh, 99 following all this nazi uh controversy they would uh, choose to take over bankers trust and this would be completed in june 99 and i mean this would be after all the negative publicity about you know what they had done in the nazi era and they agreed to contribute to a fund set up to settle holocaust era claims the bank refused however to be held liable for its holdings in industrial companies that used forced laborers during that period with the purchase of Bankers Trust, Deutsche Bank became the largest bank in the world with assets of about $750 billion. This position of preeminence proved a short-lived, however, as the company was soon surpassed by Mizu Holdings, which was formed in 2000 from the merger of three Japanese banks. Now, real quick on Bankers Trust, their uh, former alumni is uh, a man we might know, uh, Jeff Bezos. That's right. He used to work at uh, Bankers Trust. And also, uh, Bankers Trust, before it was purchased by Deutsche Bank, was purchased by Alex Brown & Sons for $1.7 billion and a $2.5 billion in stock acquisition. And then two years later, in '99, Deutsche Bank would buy Bankers Trust and Alex Brown's and Sons for $10 billion. An alumni of Alex Brown that I found notable is in 98, the Alex Brown's chairman was A.B. Buzzy Krongard, who later on in 2001 would be appointed the executive director of the CIA. That's right. The Central Intelligence Agency. It all connects. Well, actually, if you do Google Deutsche Bank and the CIA, you'll find an interesting article uh, from 2001, actually, that does happen to make a note of, yeah, Buzzy Krongard and the CIA. Mm-hmm. But also, there was a whole bunch of put options put on United Airlines and American Airlines stock in the days leading up to 9-11. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently, some of those trades were routed through Deutsche Bank. What? Uh, so, not- look, I don't know, but maybe. Maybe even not, through ba- sure. Maybe even through Bankers Trust. Yeah, I, potentially. 
I'm certainly skeptical of the CIA, but I, I, I feel like on, on maybe some of those, you might want to check the websites you're getting that info from. <laughs> Look, there was a giant lizard with a pyramid on his face. <laughs> I think it's reliable information. If you, if you zoom in on some of it the footage, it. he's the one flying the plane. <laughs> the, website, the website asks if you wanted to use frames. So <laughs> I do want to say, like, we did, a, we did our episode. We did our episode on, you know, 9-11 and kind of the Saudi Arabia connection. And I think that's kind of the, the main story of in terms of the cover up in 9-11. Mm-hmm. But there is a part of that at the time, which is the CIA allowed two of the hijackers in the San Diego cell to enter the country after they'd been flagged uh, on the FBI terrorist list. They should not have been given visas under any circumstance. Um, the CIA allowed them to enter the country, and the speculation I think that we made at the time was the CIA wanted to flip them to like informants or something, right. and then lost track of them. And that's probably the case, but you can't help but say, well, maybe the CIA just let them do their thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A little bit of a boys will be boys type of attitude. Right. Like, I don't believe in controlled demolitions, but... It wouldn't shock me if 9-11 was allowed to happen, or at least some elements of the government had knowledge of it. Well, there, there is reports that were like the White House did receive that the occurrence of 9-11 was a threat that the White House received, but they supposedly received threats all the time. So they were like, this is just one of a whole bunch, is was what I've, what I've heard about it. You don't know what George, George Bush's reaction to getting the report that an attack was imminent was? No, what was that? Uh, he apparently said to the CIA guy, okay, now you've covered your ass. <laughs> What really? Yeah, this was in the fucking uh, preschool he was at reading or whatever. No, no, this was this is uh, before the attacks. Oh, when okay. The, right. uh, when he was getting his like presidential threat briefing uh, by you know some some CIA guy who's you know his it's his big shot to visit the president and Bush was like, all right, now you covered your ass, and yeah. Okay, so quoting from Reformation.org. Although uniformly ignored by the mainstream U.S. media, there's abundant, clear evidence that a number of transactions in financial markets uh, indicated foreknowledge of the September 11th attacks. In the case of at least one of these trades, which has left a $2.5 million prize unclaimed, the firm used to place the, quote, put options on United Airlines stock was until 1998 managed by the man who is now in the, in the number three executive director position wow. at the Central Intelligence Agency. Until <laughs> 1997, A.B. Buzzy Krongard had been chairman of the investment bank A.B. Brown. A.B. Right. Brown was acquired by Bankers Trust, 97. Uh, he became, as part of the merger, vice chairman of Bankers Trust, A.B. Brown, one of 20 major U.S. banks named by Senator Carl Levin this year as being connected to money laundering, uh, blah, blah, blah. Basically... This is the bank that was used to put a $2.5 million push put option on United Airlines stock right before 9-11. Now, just to, to maybe put people a little at ease or just kind of allow us to gauge Reformation.org, you said? Yes. Uh, go to the front page and just tell us what the top articles are. <laughs> well... Let's find out together. I don't see why this would be anything but the most breaking news stories, such as the guy shooting at the White House. And uh, okay, so welcome to the Reformation Online, the most timely and truthful uh, parentheses. I cannot tell a lie. John, why are you the hard? It's, it's right there. The guy cannot tell a lie, Andy. Enter page two of the Titanic site to access hundreds of more timely articles. Oh, Jehovah, our Jehovah, how majestic is your name in all the earth. <laughs> Psalm, Psalms 8, 9. All right, then there's a bunch of uh, biblical quotations. So this is like the lady who claimed that she wrote the short story that led to the Matrix and the Terminator thing. That's like, right, yeah. That's one of those things where you'll see something and it'll be like, oh, maybe there's something there. And then you go to just read a few more of the things that that person wrote. And <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, maybe this uh, can go back in the box. You know, sometimes uh, when I tell people about the show, the like first question, they'll be like, oh, that's interesting. So like, would you ever consider selling to NPR? And every type of conversation we're having right now always flashes in my mind. And I'm like, 
no, I don't think we're, we'll ever do something like that. That's, that doesn't seem to be their style, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Guys, I've got, a, I've got another scoop here. Apparently, Deutsche Bank was also connected to insider trading activity shortly before the Munich terrorist oh, attacks. No. <laughs> yes. Our podcast just becomes fucking reading fringe third-party websites. That's it. We no longer cover billionaires. We just do this. If you, if you play Grubstakers forwards... It's conspiracy theory talk. <laughs> if you play it backwards, it's planet money. <laughs> so we will be ending uh, this part of Deutsche Bank in a moment here. But uh, before we close out, uh, Stephen and I w- received a... Oh, Jesus. Okay, I just went to reformation.org to... Well, first of all, they're not SSL secure. Oh, um, no. But... Sean, how dare you? It's because he has nothing to hide. <laughs> we cannot the tell truth, why, so. The truth is his shield. There are also, uh, <laughs> Sean failed to mention, uh, random words that are just in a different color. For instance, there's the word Jerusalem, where USA is red. Around 1730 BC, the patriarch Jacob or Israel uh, predicted that his nation would endure until the Messiah came, quote, the scepter shall not depart from all caps in all in red text Judah, nor the lawgiver from his loins, and then all caps in red, until Shiloh comes. Oh, Shiloh. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, Genesis 49.10. Look, can I just say, yes, we can discredit this website, but it is sort of weird that on September 10th, 4,516 put options on American Airlines stock were bought on the Chicago Exchange compared to only set, uh, put, or of course, the option to um, buy it at a lower price later, right. whereas a call option, a put option is you think the stock price is going to go down, a call mm-hmm. is you think it's going to go up. First article on uh, Reformation.org, the American Revolution and the Holy Bible. Uh, generally, second article, Generalismo George Washington unmasked at last. Uh, third article, this one's in red uh, text. Red March 7, Russian rogue sub sank near Pearl Harbor. Uh, fourth article, the two new world Babylons. Yes. Yeah, what happened to Grubstakers? Didn't they, they used to do those shitty drops? Oh, we got much worse after they stopped doing drops. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait, we got one uh, down here. The Fourth Reich is here, and that's under uh, the George Washington Philadelphia pandemic. Um, is it like a picture of people wearing masks? Oh, wait, Corona the fourth, the fourth Reich is the real reason for coronavirus. Okay, we got some pictures of Pope Paul the <laughs> Sixth. <laughs> got a lot of pictures of popes in this article. Um since the founding of the papal dynasty, and in the word dynasty, the word nasty is in red. Uh, <laughs> he can't tell a lie, guys. In case it wasn't clear enough. <laughs> All right, but wait a minute. Wait, listen to this, okay? Morgan Stanley occupied 22 floors of the World Trade Center. They saw 2,157 of its October $45 put options bought in the three trading days before 9-11. This compares to an average of 27 contracts per day before September 6th. Merrill Lynch occupied 22 floors of the World Trade Center, saw 12,215 October $45 put options bought in the four trading days before the attack. The previous average volume in those shares had been 252 contracts per day. All right, I know know we're not doing rational thought right now, but can I just (laughs) ask... Like what? What else was going on with United Airlines in the in the days leading up to the attack? Wait, I think this guy <laughs> something blew else open bad, a... perhaps. Wait, no, but hold I've... on, guys. I got some yes. breaking news about the coronavirus. So oh. I said, you know, the thing about <laughs> papal dynasty, uh, Pope Julius the uh, first. Since the founding, uh, the vast majority of popes have been all caps monks. Until 1972, monks were required <laughs> to wear the corona tonsure. What? It was the mark or badge of servitude to the babylonian system until the time of the blessed reformation all latin church clergymen were required to wear the corona tonsure the only monks who were exempt from wearing the tonsure were jesuits what not tony shalhoub (laughs) this also says uh i'm skipping a paragraph here wait 
uh, the that Antichrist blessed the Kennedy assassination conspirators. He also blessed <laughs> well, Operation Six Six Six. We oh, can't argue with that. The Antichrist they're referring to is uh, Pope Paul the Sixth. Nice. Apparently, Tony Shalhoub is connected to coronavirus. This is terrible. Wouldn't be the first pope to be considered the Antichrist. Yeah. Well, no, you know, seriously. he actually. Andy Breckman, shortly, you betrayed me. Did you know that shortly before they did Vatican II, the Pope was exposed to a woman wearing a polka dot dress? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to create a polka dot grub stickers logo after the show. All right, let's. Can we can we close out this fucking episode? Yes. Can, yeah. Can we Yogi please end this madness that is our I guess show? We'll do it. We'll do a third part, I think. All right. I, I have uh, we still have more to fucking part. say right now, Sean. Um, yeah, I know. I know. All right. So before we close out, we actually got uh, some moderate <clears throat> mid-tier uh, dirt uh, given to us by our informant, uh, Agent White. Uh, thank you to to the information you gave us in, in our, our um, meetings. Um, and uh, uh, Stephen and I were able to decipher it via our... Uh, internet and intellect. And uh, Stephen, would you like to help inform our audience what we learned? We were saying uh, Deutsche Bank acquired Bankers Trust at kind of what was considered to be a pretty good price. They bought them uh, the entire enterprise for about ten billion, ten point one billion dollars. That's right. And inside of Bankers Trust was. A bunch of really sketchy ass traders and bankers that they just kept on staff, right? Mm. And so those people and the whole culture that they brought with them of flaunting what little derivatives trading rules there were at the time, and uh, basically just like being paid to test the limits of their regulators that stayed, right? And like Deutsche Bank was already trending towards doing that on their own, but this like uh, what what this infor our informant basically told us is that um, they, this really, it's, this is believed to have supercharged things in terms of like the degen- like degeneration of uh, internal procedures to keep Deutsche Bank uh, at least nominally within compliance of international finance laws. Mm. They had a they had a whole internal culture of putting put options on United Airlines <laughs> in September sixth, two thousand one. I mean, what Stevens describing though is you need some bad men to get the job done of the crime you want to get done. And with the Bankers Trust acquisition, they are willing to uh, pay them cowboys to rebel. Yeah. So just a few examples of of what they were buying into when they bought Bankers Trust. So in nineteen ninety five, um, litigation by two major corporate clients of Bankers Trust shed light on the how things like how far things have gotten worse in the like the over the counter derivatives trading market. Right. And it's just one of Bankers Trust specialties. So a few Bankers Trust employees were found to have repeatedly provided customers with incorrect valuations of just how much they were exposed to their derivatives positions, which was a lot. And they said, like, we're like we're actually within basically they're doing fraud and saying that they uh, the level of exposure was less than it actually was. Mm-hmm. And so the Commodity Futures Trading Commission during the time, which was their nominally their regulator, um, they they weren't really in, they they couldn't keep track of they're having a hard enough time to keeping track of the derivatives trading of companies that actually put effort into keeping records of what they did. But Bankers Trust had like little to no records at all. And sort of like David Enrich was saying, like even if um, they just didn't keep track of what they were doing almost. Right. At a basic level. Like there's like little to no controls over what these trading desks were doing, especially for things like um, CDOs and stuff, which uh, Bankers Trust was trading. And Frontline actually did a, doc- a documentary years later after the crisis saying that bankers' trust activities were sort of re- like they could be viewed as like a precursor or a, an early warning sign of the crisis to come and that they were doing all of these risky things with trading like credit default swaps and stuff. Yes, if diabetes is the 2008 crisis, uh, this would be the pre-diabetes time. Exactly. 
So Deutsche Bank, fast, fast forwarding a bit, Deutsche Bank buys them for $10.1 billion in 1998 in November. And uh, as our as our source kind of like uh, lays out for us, basically uh, they they sold off a few units within Bankers Trust, but kept the worst ones in terms of like flaunting like basic controls over and uh, corporate governance. Mm-hmm. Years later, the CEO at the time uh, told all of the big time traders like, "Okay, we had we had one bad year." This is in the the early 2000s after the 2001 crash. He said, "We've had a really bad year, so you don't get any bonuses." And right. on Wall Street, um, for guys at that level, the bonus is most of their compensation. Mm-hmm. So one thing that happened, and it was like turned into a pretty big scandal, is the some of the really serious portfolio managers and within Deutsche Bank in New York and London. They sold off a bunch of, they liquidated part of their portfolios in order to effectively give themselves the bonus that they didn't get from the company. <laughs> right. <laughs> this cl- classic maneuver, but uh, like highly illegal, but they did it. And right. they sold, so they sold off large chunks of that to give themselves bonuses. And some of those guys were bankers' trust people. And. This is kind of like an example. Like at the time, gold, like Goldman Sachs, who recently it's been like theorized they won't even do business with. They, there's a, they've been doing a lot less business with Deutsche Bank mm-hmm. uh, because of how uncomfortable uh, the shit Deutsche Bank does makes even them feel. Wow. At the time, we're like, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just like fucking nuts. Fucking too scummy from Goldman Sachs. So Sorry. like that that sort of cu- that cultural si- the cultural shift that Deutsche Bank took on its own it started in like the early nineties, uh, buying Bankers Trust basically supercharged it. And with that, we're going to be closing uh, part two of our Deutsche Bank series here. With the next part, we're going to be talking about Deutsche Bank from the two thousands to now, their connections to Donald Trump, the, the lavish and scandalous parties, the lifestyles of the rich and famous enjoyed, as well as the many, many more controversies that occurred during the last twenty years of their reign. Um, thank you for joining us on Grubstakers. My name is Yogi Polywall. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. We're going to talk about what they were doing with Delta stock on part three. (laughs) (laughs) We have found a treasure trove at revelations.org. We are going to be accessing that for all of our future episodes. Right. Everyone stop fucking recorders. (laughs) But you know nothing, fool. It's chaos. The God of destruction. (laughs) 